Welcome to the One Minute Preceptor Podcast, your resource for clinical rotation advice and tips to prepare for your externships in healthcare. Learn how to earn letters of recommendation, prepare for your clerkship, and excel at patient care from preceptors with years of practice. We interview physician educators in every specialty and clinical setting to discuss how to prepare for your rotation and improve your clinical experience. Here's your host and MedEd entrepreneur, Chase DeMarco. Today, we have Dr. Charmaine Gregory with us. She's a nocturnist emergency physician, host of the Fearless Freedom with Dr. G podcast, and co-author of several books, including The Chronicles of Women in White Coats. Charmaine, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for having me, Chase. I'm super excited. This is going to be a great interview. I don't think we've really delved into emergency medicine too much in past episodes too. And a lot of students are very interested in that specialties. So getting a little bit of insight on how to prepare for it, I think will be very valuable. Okay. Well, yeah, I'm happy to share. So first off, I do want to ask, what is the most outrageous thing that you've seen in the medicine setting? Well, I'll tell you the most outrageous thing that I saw when I was a student. And, you know, it was, it was outrageous to me because I never envisioned that this would be something that would be a reality for a patient. And so I was on my psychiatry elective, well, my psychiatry rotation and we were on the consult service. And so we went up to see this patient who was on the medicine floor. And it turned out that he actually had a couple of things happening. So he had psychoses due to his underlying illness. But then he, because of these psychoses, he thought that his apartment was inundated with bugs. And so he got DEET spray and he got volumes of DEET. And he literally would spray everything, spray himself. And what happened was the chemicals within the, the DEET basically caused him, his psychoses to get worse and worse and worse. And so what ultimately ended up happening was he, he got on, he basically was on a mission at this point to find all the imposters that were in his life. And so he, he took all of his belongings, shoved it in a duffel bag and just started walking. And he, we were at a border state. And so he basically w- tried to walk across the border. And when he, when he was there, he had like some weapons in his bag, not like, you know, semi-automatic weapons or anything like that, but tools that could be used as weapons. So that were confiscated, obviously. And then they realized that he was ill. And so they brought him in. And the day we went in to go and talk with him, basically he was sitting there with a pair of underwear on his head. You know, we were going through our process and I was kind of like, you know, this medical student was, I'm, my eyes are fixated on the underwear. I'm like, why is this man wearing underwear on his head? Like, what is happening? And I tried my very best to resist the urge to ask the question, <laughs> but I couldn't. <laughs> and so I asked him, I said, so what is that on your head, sir? And he very quickly said, this is my protection from the aliens. And I think I had to leave the room immediately because. I knew that this man was ill. I knew that it wasn't his fault because, you know, he had underlying illness and then he was feeding into that by spraying the chemicals and then the chemicals were affecting his brain and it was leading him to be even more and more psychotic. I just, I just couldn't, I couldn't hold it in. And so I had to leave the room. I had to expel the laughter and then recompose myself and then enter back into the room and then take care of the patient. But I would say that was one of the most outrageous things I saw as a student. Yeah, there are probably a lot of interesting stories on uh, 
different psych rotations in, in different states and different populations. Just a lot of weird stuff happens in those rotations. Absolutely. Absolutely. So you have so much going on. Author, podcaster, keynote speaker, I think was another one. There's just a lot of stuff that you do. And what is your background in education and, and more specifically in emergency medicine education? Well, I basically have been faculty at my institution for 14 years. Basically what I've done over the years is I've done all kinds of things. I did the ASAP teaching fellowship, which is, so our professional organization, one of them is American College of Emergency Physicians, and they offer a teaching fellowship that you can do as an attending. And so I did that a number of years ago. That was at, at that time I was working very closely with the medical students. And so that was part of the enhancement for me to be able to deliver better, better mentorship to the students. And then I went ahead and did another fellowship with um, University of Michigan. And it was a ed medical educators fellowship. And that was kind of more broad because it was more, you know, how do you basically teach the adult learner? So I've done a couple of additional things besides just, you know, becoming a resident and graduating from residency, et cetera. You know, there's constantly activities where you're doing personal development, professional development type things in enhancing your ability to communicate, to give feedback constructively, to teach, et cetera. So that's kind of me as a, um, as a instructor, I guess. Every faculty member basically plays a role with didactics. So presenting lectures and doing simulations and all of those things. Gotcha. So you're going to have a lot of useful information for the last section when we return to instructors, to preceptors and tips and tricks for being a stronger teacher to the students. But I suppose we should probably start with some of the student related questions because a lot of students have shown a lot of interest in possibly becoming an emergency medicine physician. And generally, this can uh, change greatly as students go through different rotations and gain different experiences and see what's a better fit. But what are some tips you would have for students to prepare for the rotation? I would say that, you know, emergency medicine is essentially every single specialty, but the emergent cases related to it. So, you know, the way that we think is at the top of our minds is going to be what is the most dangerous entity that is associated with this particular chief complaint? That is how we think. And so while our colleagues in general medicine or internal medicine may want to dive into every single intricate detail of the patient's life and go through an extensive problem list, that's really not how we perform and how we think, mainly because what we have to deal with is we're pretty much in the high stakes, low data business, <laughs> big decisions, you know, high stake decisions with little data. That's the business that we're in. And so we have to become masters at assessing very quickly, then figuring out what is the prominent issue and what is the thing that is going to be undermining the patient in the short term, right? So once we've established that and we know what is the most dangerous issue related to the chief complaint, then we can go into other things. So when a, when a student is presenting to me, I always ask them that to think of that as their very first thing. Now, I'm not endorsing 
early closure bias, right? So that's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying that if somebody comes with chest pain, you should only think of a myocardial infarction. No, you should really think of the top five or maybe even the top 10 things that could, be, that could kill them in the next 15, 20 minutes, hour. But you should start with that. <laughs> so that's what I'm getting at. And so, you know, that will definitely help you to um, really curtail how you present. You prioritize that. And then you would have a plan surrounding that, right? And then the other thing to keep in mind is that what people say when they come in to see us is not necessarily what the actual chief complaint is. <laughs> so, you know, it's not unusual for us to have a patient, particularly an elder, come in and say something like, I just don't feel right. And then it's, oh, that's so specific, right? I just don't feel right. <laughs> and so, you know, that can translate to I'm having a heart attack. I am having a bowel obstruction. I'm having appendicitis. Like that is a huge net. But then the skill, the skill comes from asking questions, you know, and so this is something that you're working on constantly throughout your training and you get better and better at it. Trust me, I tell you that I've been doing this for 15 years now and I still can hone my question asking skills. Like it is something that you work on for a lifetime. But what happens is you start to ask appropriate kinds of questions. And so these would be open-ended questions. So if you go in and you say, I heard you have chest pain, you know, where is it located? That's kind of directed the patient down a pathway, right? Whereas you want to go in and you want to say, hey, Mr. Jones, what brings you in to see us today? You might get a totally different answer. Like Mr. Jones probably told triage, oh, my toe hurts. And then when Mr. Jones starts talking to you, when you have an open-ended question, like what is it that concerns you? What brought you in today? You get a completely different answer and you're probably going to get to the meat of the issue. And then if you have that data, now you can begin to explore it and figure out what can you do to work it up. So, you know, thinking about the most dangerous thing for the chief complaint, asking open-ended questions and listening. Our specialty is one that requires very rapid rapport building. And that is a skill. <laughs> Just like asking open-ended questions is a skill. This is a very, very important skill for us. Because why? People are, they don't know us, right? They're seeing us for the very first time. They're seeing us in a high stress, high stakes situation. They are in a place that is foreign to them because they're not in their doctor's office. They know their doctor, they know their doctor's office. They're in an emergency department with a whole bunch of lights and beeping and all kinds of craziness going on. They're placed in a gown, which let me tell you, the gown is, is not very warm. <laughs> it's not warm. And for whatever reason, we keep the ridiculous, we keep a ridiculous temperature throughout the department. I, I, no matter what department I've worked in, I've, I've noticed that. And I just don't know why we do that. So, you know, basically you're, you're the person that you're engaging with and that you're trying to be vulnerable so that you can get the data that you need to serve them in the best way that you can. There are some obstacles, right? So you have to like get past that. So you come in and you're super excited, you know, hey, I'm a medical student, Charmaine, and I'm super excited to see you. That's great. But it is some of these extra things that we don't always teach you guys in the early, early on. Things like utilizing the patient's name. So literally saying, hi, Mr. Jones, 
I am medical student Charmaine. And can you, do you mind telling me what brought you in today? Or what do you, what's the thing that's concerning you the most today? You know, just that. Using people's appellations make all the difference, right? Just think about, you know, when you're called the student or they actually say medical student Charmaine. You know, it's a big difference, right? So using names and eye contact. I know this sounds like a simple thing, but mm, you'd be surprised. <laughs> so eye contact being at the level of the patients, okay? not standing over them, not leaning over them, you know, literally being at eye level makes all the difference. So that may mean, or that may look like sitting next to the bed, like sitting on a stool next to the bed. If there is no stool for you to sit, oftentimes there isn't one in my situation clinically. And I have to just lean on the side of the bed so that I'm at eye level. But, you know, you having that human contact, that eye level contact, you using their appellation and you having those, that warm interaction, it can make all the difference. Mr. Jones will spill the beans. Mr. Jones will tell you everything that's going on. <laughs> you get all the history. You go out, you'll come out and present to the attending and you'll look like a superstar. How did you get that information? How did you know that he had a AAA that's being followed at the outside hospital back in Florida where he spends his winter months? How did you find that out? Mr. Jones opened up. <laughs> so it sounds like a couple of key takeaways there would be that emergency medicine in general is kind of more of a a top-down approach where you really want to think of the most severe things first, whereas some other maybe internal medicine could be almost compared to a bottom-up approach in some ways. You really have to go broad, think of every little thing, and then kind of work it out. And just if you're not really good at making friends, then maybe <laughs> it might be difficult to build that rapport. You might not be as suited for emergency medicine. as. Yeah, it's, it's funny. I never thought that that would be a skill that would be applicable, but clearly, <laughs> clearly it is. <laughs> Are there certain obstacles that you find a lot of students run into, certain things that they just have a lot of trouble with or that a lot of students have similar issues with? Sometimes people have difficulty with the procedural side of this specialty. It all depends kind of on what your school situation is. Like some schools, you know, you get a lot of hands-on procedural stuff. Like you're putting in IVs, you're doing, you know, you're doing lines, like you're doing a lot of stuff. But then there may be other places where you just don't have that opportunity. And so you may not be as facile. You know, you may not have sutured before, you know, before entering your rotation. And so, you know, these are the things that we kind of expect students are able to do. Right. So just like when you go to surgery, you go to a surgical rotation, you should be, you should be suturing like you may close. You know, you may do a stitch or two on the closing or you, there are opportunities for you to do these things. So it's the same way. So we would expect that you would know how to close a laceration. We'd also expect that you, you know, some other basic things like maybe you might learn during the rotation, you may very well learn how to splint, you know, a fracture or something. The procedural things often are the things that I notice that students get kind of hung up on. The other thing is, basically kind of condensing and figuring out what's important. And, and you know what, that's not, that's not even just intrinsic to our specialty, but I think that that's as true from the student's standpoint. Why? Because you're just at that stage of learning where you haven't gathered enough experience, number one, and you haven't gathered enough exposures, associations maybe, 
to be able to figure out when someone is not being straightforward with you or what they're saying and you'll be able to read between the lines. So I think that those are the things because it's not, it's not unusual. And this happens to residents too. So don't think that you're alone when, when, as a student. There are times when the resident will go in and they'll see the patient. And then of course, I've seen the patient before they've seen the patient. You know, they'll come and they'll tell me something and then I'll circle back and I'll talk to the patient again. And something was completely missed, right? And it's not because they didn't do an excellent job. They did, but it is how you approach it, kind of, you know, reading between the lines of what the person's saying, reading kind of their secondary cues, their body language, you know, what they're doing in, on the gurney there. You know, there's just so much more that as the time goes by, you gain that and you basically gain it for a lifetime because when it comes to deciphering the mystique of a patient and how they love to hide their diagnoses. It sounds like maybe building empathy for the patient's I know that's something that we all say as physicians, you should have empathy for the patients, but it might be even uh, more prevalent here because that empathy might increase the ability to communicate and to read between the lines to kind of put yourself in their shoes and see what they might not be saying to you initially. Absolutely. Absolutely. And another thing that seems to confuse a lot of students, another question that a lot of students have is really how to know what the instructor expects from them. Sometimes that's not always made extremely clear. Setting those expectations or if you hit a, an obstacle and you're not sure how to approach it. Do you have any advice for techniques to build a stronger relationship with your preceptor? I would say that you come in, you say, I'm medical student Charmaine and I, I am with you this month. Please let me know exactly what you expect. <laughs> no, Simple, it's crazy. Just ask. <laughs> it's super crazy. But... Uh, I appreciate that. The students that ask me, I mean, I usually start off with telling them what, like, this is what I expect. I mean, I expect for you to push yourself. Like that, I tell the residents that, I tell the students that, so they know that is the expectation. But I will go into, this is what I expect you to do when you go in the room. I don't expect for you to spend more than 20 minutes. If you spend more than 20 minutes, I will be calling you out of the room. Like I have specific expectations but not everybody does that. Not everybody will tell you straight up. And so that's why, and I'm one of those people who just like ask stuff, like, I don't care. I'm just like, well, I need to know what's going on because if I don't know, I can't know if I'm doing it incorrectly or not. So <laughs> therefore, my advice would be to just introduce yourself, let them know that you're there and you say, is it, what, what is it that you're, what is your expectation from me during this rotation, how do you like your presentations? Because see, if you say that, that is their opening to tell you exactly what they want. And so there's no guess what I'm thinking, which is what a lot of people like to play that game. But I don't play that game. <laughs> so, but you know, and I don't want people to feel uncomfortable. So that's why I usually just say what my expectations are. But you can protect yourself from the surprise mid rotation evaluation that's not what you thought it would be if you just say at the very beginning, hey, tell me what you want and let me know if I'm not meeting those expectations because there's no way. I mean, you can literally say this. There isn't any way for me to improve and be better if I'm not given the feedback. So I appreciate it if you definitely would let me know if I'm not meeting those expectations. I like it. Simple. <laughs> <laughs> then I guess the next step would be how as a preceptor, as an instructor, can we monitor if we're doing things properly, if we're 
really getting through to the students or if they're having troubles, how to overcome it, especially since you have so much extra education for teaching medical students. I'm sure you have a lot of great tips here that you could share with the potential instructors out there. You know, there is something that is really effective and it's effective for patients, but is also effective for colleagues, students, and residents, right? And that is the teach back. So you show them something, you tell them something, and then you say, teach it back to me. Because, I mean, really, you know, if you really know something, you understand something, you can show it to somebody else, right? And so that is the first piece of really getting that someone understands, like what you are showing them. So, and then the next thing is to definitely do feedback in real time. So don't, and this is something that we do as a bad habit. It is something that we do, you know, by happenstance because we're super, you know, busy or we're, you know, there's, we got called away to the next thing at the end of the session and we didn't get a chance to circle back with the student. But so we don't do it on purpose, but it is best to give the feedback in real time. So at the end of the shift, I go over their cards with the students and I'm like, look, so first of all, they have an expectation. They have like a goal. They have a goal for the shift. So the goal might be something like get, you know, have a better differential list or be able to do a particular procedure by the end of the shift. So they'll have an an intention, a goal for the shift, which is good, right? Because when you're doing intentional learning, right? When you're really trying to internalize something for life, then you need to be very, very direct about that. So you have to set an intention to start off and then you would be working throughout that, that time period to course correct and keep going so that it becomes something that you now have as a skill forever. At the beginning, we set the intention or the goal and then, you know, shift goes on. Of course, we're giving feedback all along on the different patients and how we manage them, et cetera, et cetera. And then at the end, we would then circle back and say, well, how do you feel that this shift went? And I don't tell them like how I think, you know, I mean, oftentimes I'm kind of like outspoken. So I do tell them like if I think something's not right, like right then I don't wait. I don't wait for that. I'm like, this is a teachable moment right here. We're going to address this. And so that is the key, right? So you want to have introspection. You as the learner, you want to have introspection. So the person who is mentoring you or the person that is facilitating your learning, they basically should be asking you, how do you think it went, right? Because if you did set an intention at the beginning, throughout the whole period, you should be thinking about that intention, right? Because that's how it's going to basically internalize. And then at the end, you should have a synopsis of what that, was, that experience was like for you. And so you should be able to relate that very easily. And that's going to give the teacher an opportunity to provide positive, constructive criticism, right? And help you to grow even more than you already have during this very intentional period that you were working. And so, you know, that's one of the things. That communication, the lines of the communication definitely is very important. And starting with the open-ended, what was your impression of the shift? Um, well, I guess it's not shift if it's another service, but for me, it's, I say shift because that's the, the space that I work in. And then actually asking 
what do you think your strengths were? Like, what do you think was a strong point during this shift? What do you think was something that you need to work on during the shift? And they may have gotten that feedback like throughout the time, but it's just coming together and closing it out at the end that makes a huge difference. And then there's no surprise when, you know, the card goes into the, um, the student repository and the grade comes through. Like, it's not a surprise. It sounds like that would help them also build a little bit of uh, awareness mm-hmm. and metacognition of the whole process. So uh, learning that also, developing that skill and that self-assessment ability is very powerful later on. Yeah, you know, the other thing that I found that people always say, like, do that, um, what is it called? It's like a sandwich. You do a positive and a negative and a positive. I'm like, eh. <laughs> I don't know. I never bought into that sandwich because I always knew the sandwich, you know, like someone's doing it to me. And I'm like, oh, you're doing that sandwich thing. Like, and then I totally wasn't listening to everything. <laughs> so I feel like if you engage the person that is the learner, like you're engaging them as you're facilitating their learning, it just makes that much more difference, right? Because now you're invested as opposed to turning off your brain like I do when someone gives me that stupid sandwich. (laughs) So we've covered a lot of great material here. Do you have any recommended resources for a student before or during an emergency medicine rotation? You know what? I'm trying to think. So I have to tell you that I was a student a long time ago. (laughs) So (laughs) what I used during that time was like, there there was a book called Emergency Medicine Secrets or something like that. But I also had to take a shelf exam for my rotation. I don't think, and, and, and I've been on the clinical teaching side, but I have not been on the side where, you know, I've seen what the exam is that the, the students take. So I can't tell you if that shelf thing is still existence, but I would say that I would get a comprehensive book. So Tintinale, I think, has like a, basically a student version of it. Tintinale is one of the textbooks that is, basically a handbook for emergency medicine. It's been around for a number of years, but I do believe they had, they had like a mini version. So I remember carrying that around with me as a student. And so that'd be great for just an overview of all the major topics and things that you should be picking up on. And then if there is a shelf exam, uh, I would say I would get your hands on some kind of question book with emergency medicine, you know, board style questions and just do those as well, like as you're going, because that will really help you. And of course, it's even better if you see the thing in a clinic that's in the, no, that's in the questions or that's in the book, or when you're done with your shift. Ah, here's a good one. When you're done with your shift, keep in mind or write down like a couple of issues. So maybe you saw somebody that had hypertensive emergency and you know, there are many different kinds of hypertensive emergency. So maybe you saw the cerebral hemorrhage type, right? And so you saw how that was managed and you now have a patient's face and case to associate with that, which obviously solidifies it in your head. But you may want to go home now and then read about all the other ones, right? So now you have a great context because you have that patient, you've seen the management of it, And then now you're going to go and learn about the other aspects of that particular disease state. And so those are the things that are really going to help because, you know, that's stuff that you just don't 
you don't lose, right? Because you're, you're, you're catering to every single side. So if you're a visual learner like me, I'm, I'm such a visual learner. Like I literally, when I'm in the room with patients and I'm telling them something, I'm like drawing on the whiteboard. I'm like, all right, here's your gut ladder. And this is where the stone is. <laughs> you have to trigger every single side of your learning phases, right? So if you're a visual learner, you want to, if you have to draw it out, draw it out, you know, so you read about the thing and then you draw it out. And if you're a tactile learner, you know, the procedural things are going to really solidify it for you. If you are a audio auditory learner, then you may want to listen to a podcast or listen to a lecture about the hypotensive emergency states, you know, so you just have to feed yourself with these things like uh, in many different forms. And that's really what is going to help you to get the most out of any rotation, not just emergency medicine, not just emergency medicine, but any rotation and the most out of your, your learning experience as a medical student. So really you want to use that experience as a foundation, as a baseline, and then delve deeper into it with different resources while it's still fresh in your mind. Exactly. Make those connections, make them last longer. Mm Mm-hmm. What is the biggest change that you would like to see in medicine in the next five to 10 years? Oh my gosh, Chase, that's such a loaded question because I have so many things I want to change. <laughs> but <laughs> um, I would say as far as our education, I feel like the biggest thing that we need to change is we need to not tell us, tell us as in, you know, the people that have gone through it, that the only way to make a difference in medicine is to practice bedside medicine. You know, I mean, I think bedside medicine is awesome. I think so. I know so. And that's what I practice. But I, I feel like we narrow our scope because we have individuals that could be doing translational research, for example, right? They don't have to be MD, PhDs to do this but they don't think about it because they're like, oh, I have a DO or I have an MD and so I don't have the PhD part. So I couldn't possibly translate the work from bench to bedside. And then the, the other thing is, you know, just other, other paths that definitely lead to benefiting the end user who is a patient, <laughs> but you don't have to necessarily do it, you know, a particular way. You don't have to be linear in how you approach it. And then the other thing is, Having education about finance, financial situations, because what happens is this. We go through the pathway. We do the things. We take the tests. We jump through the hoops. We get to that place that we've been dreaming of from whenever, eight years old or 25 or whenever you decide you want to do this. And then you're out there and you're done with your training and they're like, all right, well, you ready to hang your shingle (laughs) or (laughs) you ready to get a job? And you have no idea about anything related to that. And there's a lot related to that. So if you're going to start your own thing, that is entrepreneurship. And there is some financial things associated with that. And so if you have no clue, it can get kind of ugly. You can kind of, you know, fall a lot on your face and then have to get back up. If you make a wrong decision in your contract, that can be ugly too. You know, when you're joining a group of people and you're, you're, you're doing this thing. So I think some basic knowledge or some basic training on finances. <laughs> and I know this is not B school, but I get it. Like, but even 
a something like even a, I don't know, like even a couple of lectures that just said, Hey, this, this is out there. Just be aware. And if you, somebody decides they want to run with it, then great. If not, at least you've been exposed and it's not a surprise. Yeah, definitely <laughs> agree. <laughs> Luckily, there's so many great resources and podcasts out there for learning finances for physicians. We had one interview last season. I think we might have another one or two this season. So there's definitely resources out there for students to start looking into ahead of time so they can plan and learn and grow as their education grows too. Absolutely. I would highly, highly recommend it. <laughs> Highly. Did I say highly? Highly. (laughs) (laughs) And where can the audience find out more about you and your resources? So the podcast is Fearless Freedom with Dr. G. And that is, the podcast basically deals with fear, right? It's the reason why the podcast even got started. It's kind of funny because literally I have a fear of public speaking. And I know you're probably like, what? (laughs) You're pretty talkative. Like, how could that even be? But I do. I have a fear of public speaking. It's mitigated now but it was pretty bad, you know, some years ago. And so the podcast was started on that premise. And what has happened is that there have been many individuals, a lot of them are from medicine that have come on and talked about their fears and how they've overcome it. And sometimes we even do a deep dive into the psychology of fear, et cetera, et cetera. So it's fun. It's a fun thing to listen to. And so that's that. And then I'm at Charmaine Gregory MD on all the listening, all the listening platforms, all the social media platforms, except for Twitter, because I never like fix my Twitter. (laughs) So my Twitter is charms, C-H-A-R-M-S, F as in fish, I-T, doc, D-O-C. And website? Website. Oh yeah, website. Fervently fit with charmaine.com and on the website i have some stuff i have you know the stuff about the book and the podcast and speaking stuff so yeah check me out hit me up happy to chat (laughs) (laughs) we'll definitely add that into the show notes so people can reach out and learn more about you and your materials and i wanted to thank you so much again for coming on and sharing your emergency medicine knowledge and education skills no problem thank you for having me Our Med Student Mentor Facebook group is a great place to gain insights and ask questions. This group is full of students and educators to guide you through your clinical rotations and ask your clinical questions. So search for the Med Student Mentor Facebook group now and learn how to become the clinician or educator that you want to be.